scripture today is from Luke chapter 14, verses 25 to 33. It's Luke 14, 25 to 33. Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate, whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000. And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. This is God's word. Just for the record... Uh, on the wager between 7 and 40. I knew my family was coming, so I definitely said at least 40. (laughs) So in light of the holiday, in light of the joy of all of us being together, I thought I'd pick a nice, light, cheery, happy passage to be talking about. And I couldn't think of anything more chipper than this one that we just read. So I've been processing this passage for months, and I've been ignoring it and trying to just put it to the side for the last like 15 years of my life. I've had no idea what to do with this passage. It is extremely challenging in every way. It says, hate your family. Well, that just doesn't make sense. It says, bear the penalty for your sins. It can't really do that. It says, you're an embarrassment. If you can't count the cost, you're like, what do I do? What do I do with this? When you look at the book of Matthew, at the same passage, it says, you're not even worth being my disciple. You're not worthy. And it repeats that multiple times. It's just being echoed and drilled into you. And if you have any sense of conscience, this just gets at you, and it hurts, and the burden is great. So what do you do? What do you do? And... It brings up this question of what is this discipleship that's talking about? If I'm not worthy to be the disciple, if I can't be his disciple, what does it mean to be a disciple? Well, in 1 John 2, it says, anyone who claims to abide in him must walk as Jesus did. I think that's a perfect description of a disciple. You're proactive. You're following him. You're pursuing him. You're surrendering. You're yielding. You're trying to walk in the same ways that he was walking. Most of us say Christianity is one thing. When I become a Christian, I say, Jesus is my Lord, that's good. But discipleship is over here. When you look at the early church, there was only disciples. It wasn't until Antioch much later that we got branded Christians. It's made some sort of distinction there. But if you call yourself a Christian, you are a disciple. Now that automatically confronts me because what am I doing Am I looking like this? Because when I look at this passage, I'm like, am I doing this? Am I hating my family? Am I bearing the penalty for my sins? Am I counting the cost? What does this really look like? And so the 
I want to ignore it, but I can't. And I think when you come to these challenging passages like this, if you dig in, you find the heart of God buried underneath it. And so that's what I want to do today. This is four different stories. Each one deserves a sermon. Each one deserves a lifetime of dedication to figure it out. So I'm really just going to hone in on a couple of these verses. After that, we're going to extrapolate that just a little bit. Then look at God's heart behind it. Then we're going to go for a simple application. So these are the verses I'm going to focus on. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid the foundation and is not able to finish... All who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. <laughs> Roughly the laughter is added. <laughs> so I think all this hinges on the tower. What is the tower that's talking about? And so being the great scholar that I am, I went and looked at a Greek lexicon and said, What is the tower? And my mind was blown. It means tower. Okay? And this is actually a huge clue. It doesn't mean it's a building doesn't mean house. It doesn't mean chicken coop or a wall or a fence. All right? It doesn't mean any of those other things. It specifically chose tower. And so when I look at the scripture and the way that Jesus spoke, he chooses his word very carefully. So there must be something significant about this. So I went and looked at the different ancient cultures around the world and said, what are their towers? So you Google like Mesopotamia and the towers and Mesopotamia. And I've taken history of architecture courses as well. And so you have ziggurats. And so this is in Mesopotamia, so Iraq, Iran, Middle East, that area. They're called ziggurats. All these are towers. Today, still today, we have about 20 to 30 of these that exist in the Middle East. When you think of the Tower of Babel, it's probably a ziggurat like one of these. I was like, that's, that's interesting. That's not exactly what I would have thought it looked like. That's, that's fair. So then I went and looked at, what about the Far East? What do, what do their towers look like? What are their purposes? And so these are called pagodas. And these are found in India and in China. So all the different Hindu gods and things of that nature and their worship and their ancestry worship. So they have towers as well. And then... I was like, well, what about the Aztecs, the Mayans, the Incans, and what do they have? And all their towers look very similar to all the ziggurats and to the other towers. These are all towers, and all these towers of these ancient cultures were places of worship. They were sacred. It was places where people came and met with God. It's when man made great effort to go and strive to meet with him. And I'm like, okay, so... That's pretty good. The scripture support even further that this tower could be like building the temple. And so in Isaiah 5 and in Matthew 21, they both have metaphors that incorporate, temp, uh, incorporate towers. And both of those are pretty vivid. And both are implying and looking at the temple. So what's the importance of this idea of building the temple? This is where man and God go to meet face-to-face. This is where you go to commune. If you're going to talk to God, this is where you're going to be. If you want to intercede on behalf of the people, this is where you go. This is how you make it happen. If you're seeking forgiveness for your sins because the burden you're carrying is too great, you go to the temple. If you're looking for healing, you go to the temple. If you're looking for justice, you go to the temple. That's really significant. Because here we have in this passage, 
which of you desiring to build a tower? Or which of one of you desiring to build a temple? When he says which of you, he's addressing uh, Pharisees. He's addressing the crowd, merchants, military, um, musicians, etc. Teachers, whatever it may be. Addressing all these different people and saying, which of you desires to do this? Which of you wants to go and meet with God? Which one of you wants to hear from God speak? It doesn't matter from their motivation behind it. They just want to go there. They want to be there. Which one of you is like wanting God? And he says, you got to first sit down and count the cost. Do you have enough to build it? Otherwise, if you start and you can't finish, you're going to get mocked. It's going to be shameful. So counting the cost, what does it cost to go and build this temple, to build this tower? Whenever I've heard this mentioned, whenever I've heard this in reference, in just casual conversations by believers, it's always referring to people who are like backsliding, or they're trying to make an investment. It's like, oh, well, they didn't really count the cost, so that's why they stopped. That's why they quit. What I do for work is I, I sell businesses. And just so you know, 95% businesses that start fail within the first five years. 95%. Do you know why the number one causes that businesses fail? They didn't count the costs. They didn't have the capital. Either they didn't have enough injected up front or they couldn't make enough revenue coming from it or they just mismanaged it. Either way, they didn't count the cost. 95% fail. That's not in your favor. Just to let you know. Um, and so when I look at Christians and we talk about people backsliding from the church, they go through a hardship, they go through a struggle and there's like, oh, it's just too hard and they leave. It's like, oh, they didn't, they didn't count the cost. And it's like, we're, but us as believers, we're, we're here on Sunday morning. We counted the cost. We like, we got baptized. We might even gotten showered this morning before we came here. Good job. That's not to my kids though, because some of you didn't shower this morning. Uh, uh, but do we really know the cost? We haven't gone all the way through yet. We haven't finished this race. There's so many un questionable and unfathomable things that could happen to us in a lifetime. Have you counted the cost yet? Do you really know? We can say people are dying for their faith all across the world. I'm sorry. You don't know anyone who has missed a meal in the last week. You don't really know what that means of they risk their life across the world. That's like a $3 trillion stimulus bill. We don't really know what that means. That's just imaginary numbers. You know, we don't get it. And so when we look at this, guy here, this one who's wanting to go in, build this temple, says if he had counted the cost ahead of time, he would have known he couldn't have finished it. So it's not if he had calculated better. It's not if he had estimated better, he could have done it. If he was just smarter, if he was just wiser, if he had just taken a few more courses, if he had just listened to that counsel that someone gave him that was so perfect, then he could have done it. No, either way, no matter how you slice this story, you can't afford it. That's devastating news. I'll also point out, this guy went all in on his investments. When I'm selling businesses, people are like cashing in the 401ks to go and buy stuff. They're putting all their everything on the line. They're selling all their houses so they can make this sort of thing happen. 
It's not his motivation or his intention. He wants it. He has good intentions here. He's sacrificing everything. Not enough. Not enough. And so when we, as believers, when we like talking about our salvation, it's like we are saved by grace and not by works so that no one can boast. It's a gift of God. But discipleship, you better work your tail off. Nope. It's the same story. It's the same continuum. It's the same spectrum. To start your salvation, you can't afford the cost. Jesus did it. It's a gift. 50 years down the road, you appreciate that gift even 50 times more than you did at the beginning. That's the way the story unfolds. At no point in time could you afford this. It keeps you humble and keeps you appreciating it. So if you are trying to earn God's presence, you're trying to earn his forgiveness, you're going to be put to shame. But when he says this passage, he kind of leaves you hanging, just hanging there for a second. He's not saying this as a judge. He's not saying this to condemn you. He's not just, I'm trying to make you feel bad. He's not laying down the gavel. He's not mocking us. He's not being sarcastic. There's such a genuine heart behind this passage. It's like, what is it? What's the heart of God here? Because I'm on the edge and I'm in a state of desperation. There's nothing I can do here. What is it? And you hear softly and you hear it in his tone. He's like, I'm the one who left the father to come down for you. He's like, I'm the one who separates myself from my family to come and save you and rescue you. It's like, you can't carry your cross. I came down to carry the cross for you because your sacrifice isn't good enough. You can't afford this temple, this tower. You can't afford us having this intimate relationship. You can't afford discipleship. But I came and chose you and want you. I picked you because you're valuable to me. And it's expensive. And if it's expensive to God, it can't be cheap to us. So he came, he paid that price, he died on the cross, he rose again three days later. But the good news doesn't stop there. He sent his Holy Spirit to come and dwell inside of us. So that very thing we were seeking, that communion and that discipleship with God, we can teach us so we can have that discipleship and learn directly from him. He sent his spirit to dwell inside of us so we can have that here, now, every day as you're walking through. You can't abide in him without that spirit inside of you. And he's like, I made a way. I made a way. So this is the fun part. He says, you can't afford the temple. You can't afford to build it. I did. But I want you to build with me. I want you to build with me. Now when I hear that, that just gets me excited. Uh, The... I think about Jesus being the master builder. All right. He's going and building this billion dollar building and he invites us to come along and he invites everyone to come along. So we have people from every, every ethnicity, every dysfunctional family, every gender, 
both of them, from all ages. And he says, come and build with me. Now I know anything that I do just with my children, someone's going to get hurt. There's going to be some price to pay. I can't go for a walk without all my kids falling over and getting scratched up and bloody. There's going to be a cost to pay, even just going on a walk with a kid. Now when you put all of our different cultures and backgrounds and communication styles, and all of us going, we're going to build a temple together. We're going to build a church together. We're all going to be here. There's going to be some prices that come to pay between all of us. We're going to rub each other the wrong way. It's going to happen. But we get to do it. And we get to build this with him. And he's the master builder. What happens as we progress in our faith is we get to the point where we get cocky. We're like that 16-year-old who's sweeping, picking up all the sawdust off the construction sites and going, I could build this building. I know how to fear it out. I can swing a hammer. And then it's like the owner comes by and is like, you're still with your mom and dad and are getting an allowance. It's like, you don't know what you're talking about. Can you pay for your own car insurance or your cell phone, little kid? Go back and keep sweeping. But he wants us to mature and grow and grow and keep maturing together and build up into other roles and keep becoming better leaders and stronger people, encouraging a church, bring us to greater unity. And that's, that's the fun. But the disciples don't get that point and they miss the cost of trying to build the tower and the cost of trying to afford the tower as two very different things. The disciples come and ask them and say, hey, can we sit at your right and your left hands when, when you're in your heavenly throne? And Jesus goes, can you drink from the cup that I drink? The answer is no. No, you can't. You can't do that. They go, yeah, we can. It's like, good job, kid. Nice try. He says, you will drink from the cup. You will be paying a price. You'll be fellowshipping in his sufferings with him. When you look at all the letters in the New Testament, there's always an element of suffering that's existing in it and struggle and trying to work through things and trying to improve and trying to make the churches better. There's also struggle that comes from the world trying to persecute it and cause additional pain and riots and stoning and all sorts of other stuff. There's so much pressure going on. There's going to be a price that's difficult that we get to pay. But he says, I rejoice in the sufferings because I get to know what Jesus went through and I get to know more intimately. I get to disciple closer to that. So when you look at this passage, I don't want you to see it as condemnation. I don't want you to see it as judgment. I want you to see it as Jesus offering you the invitations like, let me teach you. Come close. I paid the price. I get the price. Come join me. Come help build with me. So here's just a couple simple applications from this. A couple small things. One. Ephesians 4, 11 and 12 say this. And he gave us the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, the teachers, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith. Okay? We're all building up. We're all building a tower. Okay? What's your role? Take your role seriously. Are you the apostle? That's like the one who goes and does the site work first. They're the one clearing out all the trees, getting all the rock, and preparing the site for the construction. Are you the prophet? 
That's like quality control. No one really likes them, but they're really important to have around. You have the evangelist. That's like your HR recruiting department going and saying, come and do this. We're the best company ever. Come, 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 come. Okay. You have them. You have the shepherds. Those are like your pastors, but also your foreman or your superintendent. They're the one on site, making sure their team is working in order. It's a critical role. Some of you have that gifting. Then you have the teachers, the one training you. How do you do your job better? How do you do your role better? What is your role? If you're just sitting here, think about what your role is. Devote yourself wholly to it. Because you're part of the team. You're part of the team. We're building this together. Second thing, this is simple. Uh, because we just read through First Timothy, First Timothy 4 says this, devote yourself to the public reading of scriptures, to exhortation, and to teaching. This applies to everyone here. If you can read, you can do this. You may not be ready for those roles yet. You don't have the job descriptions. You haven't filled out the assessment or the matrix to find out your score, to find out where your gifting set is or your role is. But you can read. So this is what I would challenge you to do. It's very simple. Read the Bible. Okay? Read the Bible with your spouse. Read the Bible with your kids. You can do it in the morning. You can do it in the evening. You can do it at dinner time. But they need to see you reading it. One of the most powerful things that happens for a kid as they get older, the most number one influence on their life of if they became and stay a believer, is if they read the scripture a lot. Read the scripture. You can at least do that. You don't have to know what a Greek lexicon is. You can still read the Bible. Uh, it says to exhort to challenge, to build up. See what I did there? Tower, you're building up. It works. Okay? Challenge each other. You have gifts. You have talents. You can see it in your children. You can see it in your spouse. You have abilities and gifts. You're great leaders. You're good problem solvers. You're great musicians. You know how to draw out truth. You can do great things. Do it. Take a baby step towards it. Let's foster that inside of you. Third thing I said to do is teach. I'm very thankful that I have kids at least this tall because their vocabulary is not as good as mine. As soon as they get to 10 or 11, I'm shot. Their vocabulary is better than me. I can't just work on some of those basic things anymore. But you can teach. You can just read a passage, talk about it. Kids will ask questions as they get older. And if you have younger ones, the older ones can answer questions for the little ones. They may really enjoy it. If you don't know the answer, poke your spouse. Put them on the spot works every time. And with that, when you host people, read it with them too. Most Saturday mornings, we try to have pancakes in prayer. Pancakes are fabulous. They are fantastic. I'd encourage any of you to come and challenge the goodness of my pancakes. Um, But the prayer is even sweeter than the syrup. Even my apple pie pancakes, it's even better than that. Even the cinnamon roll pancakes, it's better than that too. We read the Bible together. We pray with each other. 
and it's ministry and it's effective. Do we do it all the time? Are we perfect at it? No. But it's good. It's really good. We try to have nighttime devotionals and invite people over for dinner. Come join us for nighttime devotionals. It doesn't look good. Most of the time my kids are like upside down on the couches and rolling over each other and flopping on someone else. They're there's crying. People are running to go use the restroom. This was a huge mistake. I trained them that if you have a question, just raise your hands. So every night we review, if you have a question, what do you do? You raise your hand. One night, four years ago, four years ago, I said, if you have a question, stick out your tongue. Every night for the last four years, <laughs> when I asked the question, if you have a question, what do you do? They all stick out their tongue. And I totally just reinforced them to continue doing that. It was a terrible idea to even mention that again. <laughs> it doesn't have to be organized. It doesn't have to be great. It doesn't have to be good. But when you have people come over, you can read the Bible together. Talk about it. Discuss it. You don't have to have a plan. You don't have an eight-week Bible study curriculum figured out. Uh, a couple weeks ago, we just chose a passage. Why? Because I thought it was going to be a good passage. And it spoke directly to the lady who was with us that day because God had talked to her several other times that week about the exact same passage. God does that. His word does not return void. So this is a challenging passage nonetheless. It says, count the cost. Whenever anytime Jesus says a phrase like that and puts that challenge on you, it's not out of judgment. It's not out of condemnation. It's not to make you feel guilty. It's because he's already fulfilled it. And so we humbly trust him going, I believe you. Thank you. And then he invites you. You want to come build with me? You want to come join me? And that's abiding. His heart is for you, not against you. And if God didn't, if he even gave us a son, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? And so he calls us, read the Bible together. Know your role. Grow in your role. Build up this church. Exhort one another. Challenge each other. Teach one another. So as I close in prayer, and as we have the musicians come up and sing a song, pray, listen, hear God speak. What is he asking you to do this week? Do you have any guests coming over this week? Are you going to visit someone? If you don't know, check with your spouse. They do. Guarantee it. I challenge you, make it awkward. Read the Bible together with them this week. It is awkward. It's like a middle school dance. It's really bad, but it works. Um, so let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for your goodness and your kindness and that you challenge us. I thank you that you don't leave us idle in our faith. I thank you that you push us. I thank you that you're gentle. I thank you that you're a master builder. And that you invite us to offer what we can offer. I pray that we bring our families along with us. That we disciple. That we read the Bible. That we pray together. Please help us to learn our roles. You're really holy and you're really good. Please cover us this week. Help us to hear from you. In Jesus' name, amen.